Hello, and welcome to another IBMS pod. I'm Rob Dabrowski, editor of the Biomedical Scientist magazine. Along with my co-host, Jordan Ross, I'll be speaking to Dr. Sarah Pitt about virology and finding herself in the media spotlight as a pandemic expert. We then hand over to Helen Blackburn, who is speaking to Umar Siddiqui, who is not only a biomedical scientist, but also one of the stars of TV's Gogglebox. First, the news headlines. Hello and welcome to December's IBMS pod. I'm Jordan. And I'm Helen. And here are the latest updates from the IBMS. IBMS President Alan Wilson met with Lord Bethel in November, the Minister for Innovation, to offer our support to the government's mass testing programme and to raise members' concerns. Lord Bethel was receptive to the issues raised and it is hoped Alan's offer for the IBMS to be involved in training staff will be taken up. The IBMS has published a statement summarising the main COVID-19 rapid testing options. It can be found in the show notes. It's time to renew your IBMS membership for 2021. All members should have received email correspondence regarding renewals. You can also find out how to renew on our website. The NHS is consulting into the proposed change to the law to allow biomedical scientists to supply and administer medicine using the patient group's directions procedure. If you want to show your support for this development, be sure to complete the NHS's short online survey by the 10th of December. In light of the ongoing pandemic, the dates for IBMS Congress have been postponed to the 14th to the 17th of March 2022. The Science Council have honoured two IBMS members for exceptional CPD. Janice Harland was commended in the Chartered Scientist category and Katie Johnson as a Registered Science Technician. In November, the IBMS ran the Biomedical Scientist Live, a four-day virtual event full of talks and webinars. For all those who couldn't make it, we are hosting a rerun on Thursday the 10th of December. You can register your place at live.thebiomedicalscientist.net. Okay, so welcome to the latest podcast, everyone. And today we are joined by Dr. Sarah Pitt. Um, Sarah, would you like to say a few words to introduce yourself about who you are and what you do? I'm Dr. Sarah Pitt. I am a principal lecturer at the University of Brighton, and I'm also a member of the IBMS Virology Scientific Advisory Panel, and I'm the Chief Examiner in Virology. Brilliant. And this is your second appearance on the IBMS podcast, Sarah, the first person to have that great accolade. <laughs> and um, the last time we spoke, it was almost exactly 12 months ago to the day, it was, and it was yeah. a face-to-face meeting in your office in Brighton. It was. It felt like a very different time. How, how, how have the last 12 months in general felt to you? Well, it's been a very interesting and challenging time, obviously. And the thing we were talking about last time was my potential breakthrough with uh, discovering an antibiotic in snail mucus. And that research has been completely on hold the whole of the year um, because we had a few glitches and we had to uh, restart in the spring when the snails came out of hibernation. So I'd actually went up, gone out, collected a whole new batch of snails um, on about the 10th of March. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, we had to let them all go. So I'm sure they were quite happy about that. But the the research has had to had to go on hold. So I, I've not had the year like everybody else. I've not had the year I was expecting at all. And my virology training has come much more to the fore this year than I ever expected. Um, so so that's been interesting, um, but definitely very challenging. 
Yeah, I mean, th- this year you've basically become a spokesperson for the profession. Oh, yeah. um, how, how did that come about? You've been all over the TV, radio, newspapers. What happened, Sarah? Um, well, because, as I say, through the, through the IBMS Virology panel, we, uh, I did uh, a piece for, um, for the IBMS um, back in January, very sort of late January. And they put out it put it out as a press release about the virus, about this new virus. They put it out as a press release and asked for someone to go on our radio. It was BBC Radio Scotland. And so I said yes to that. And then it and then a week or early into the pandemic, the first couple of cases um, were in Brighton and Hove, so in my area. So the um, the local BBC local radio. Uh, BBC Sussex and also the local TV had asked the university for a spokesperson, so they put me up for that. So between between the IBMS and my my own university press office, um, they sort of both put me up to do some media work. And then once it turns out that once you're on the system, particularly BBC local radio, once one radio station has got your phone number, they've all got your phone number. So I mean, I suppose I could have said no, but I just said. Yes, because I'm I'm keen to explain to people um, what viruses are, how they work, how they how this one was being transmitted, and more recently about testing and, and now about vaccines. I think it's if I think it's important for someone to explain things simply and clearly. And so, given that I had the opportunity to do that, I was happy to take it, and I seem to have done okay. And how have you found speaking to the media? I mean, have you found in general people want you to impart knowledge so that their listeners or readers can get it? Or have you found people are kind of looking for a specific line? Have you found journalists who are after a specific thing they want to put in the headline? Or have most, most people just been asking, tell us what you know about this? Yes, a little bit depends. Some of them are really asking you to go down a specific line, and it can be quite difficult to actually push back from that if if what they're saying is not what not actually what you know to be you know to be virological scientific um, correct. So um, some of the things have been it has been it has been difficult at, at times to actually explain to people what I was what I have actually been trying meaning to say. Um, but I've generally I found it I got much better um, as time got has gone on and I've been a bit more relaxed about it because first of all I just thought oh I must be really really careful because everybody's listening but then you realise that they sort of are but you're sort of saying the same things every week you know this is a very dangerous virus and this is how it's transmitted I've said that a lot so it means that yes people are listening to you but they also they want you to reiterate what you're saying quite regularly which means they're not listening to you that hard which is the story of my life really I don't think people I don't think my students ever listen to me so um in a a way I think once you get over get over the fact get over the nerves and start being realizing that it's just an opportunity to chat to more people about your favorite subjects I mean I love lecturing for that that reason you've got a captive audience to talk about your favourite subjects, so suddenly your captive audience is everybody in a particular local BBC local area, or indeed in some cases the whole country, do, do, while you're talking about viruses. 
<laughs> do you have to modify your language much? Because you're used to speaking to a scientifically engaged audience. I imagine it must be a bit of a step to suddenly be talking to, you know, the general public and have to think, I can't use that technical language that I'm used to using. How, how does that work? Very much so. So that has been something I've got better at oh, as time has gone on. First of all, I think I found I was using a technical term and then correcting myself live on air. Now I'm doing that self-correction um, in my head in real time, live on air. But I can tell you that trying to explain to people about an antibody test without using the words antibody or protein or antigen or any of the things which we would normally use when we're talking to each other as biomedical scientists um, was quite tricky. But I think I got there in the end. And virus glycoproteins are the sticky out bits that you've seen in the pictures on the news of the virus. And um, everything else is a substance that sticks to the virus, that's antibody, and um, so on and so forth. So it's it's been quite tricky. Um, trying to explain PCR, actually, without using any technical terms is very, very difficult. But I think, I say, I think I'm getting better at it as time has gone on. Brilliant. Um, one more question in my section, Sarah, which is what has been the most important thing for you to convey to journalists with this work? Is there a specific thing that you think we, we need to say about biomedical scientists? or biomedical science that your focus has been on and getting that key message across? Yes, I think it's important to um, remind everybody that biomedical scientists are the ones who are doing the tests in the laboratories, working really hard day in, day out, actually doing the work. The idea of having a lab test, I think people think that, I don't know what people imagine happens to their sample when it's collected from them by a doctor or a nurse, but I think this this year has really highlighted the fact that laboratories are actually, A, they exist, and B, there's actual people in there, and B and C, those people are very highly qualified, skilled scientists. I think we've had the opportunity to really highlight that, and I think that has been really important to do that. But I think the other thing that I've tried to do is to convey that scientists are normal human beings as well. We're not some kind of strange um, geeky people that you can't relate to. I think that I think that's what I've been trying to do. As I've relaxed into my interviews, I've actually tried to show, explain the human side of the fact that I can't see my mother. You know, I'm not trying to tell everyone they've got to stay in lockdown to beat the virus, and um, and you know, I am telling them to do that, but also I'm doing it too. You know, I really want to give my mother a cuddle, but I can't. So I'm in the same situation that everybody else is. It's not like I'm, I'm especially enjoying this more than everybody else um, because it's my subject. So I, I'm trying. So biomedical scientists, if A, they exist, B, they're very highly qualified, and C, they're actual human beings. I think those are the three things I've tried to convey. So that seems like the perfect point for me to pass you over to Jordan, who's got a few more questions for you. Yeah, no, that, that leads quite well into my questions. Because while the pandemic has been, the impact has been terrible, undoubtedly, it's also provided a unique opportunity for biomedical scientists to become more visible to the public. Mm. How effective do you think your media appearances and the appearances of the IBMS been in increasing awareness of the work biomedical scientists do um, to the public? 
I think they really have. I mean, I make sure that when whatever I'm, whichever station I'm going on, be it radio or TV, um, and um, whenever, whatever, whenever it is, that um, the fact that I'm a fellow of the Institute of Biomedical Science gets is part of my title. So um, the IBMS gets a name check every time I do something. But I think even more important, our president, Alan Wilson, has been on, you know, BBC Sky, BBC News and Sky News, the, the main evening news, um, and in the main broadsheet newspapers, mm-hmm. issues about testing, which unfortunately have come up quite a lot. Um, he has been quoted in um, newspaper, you know, he's been interviewed by journalists, so he's been quoted in newspaper articles in main newspapers. And I think, again, he's the president of the Institute of Biomedical Science, which means people have heard of the Institute of Biomedical Science. People who had no idea that um, we even existed have now have now heard of us. And I think that is really very, very good. Mm. Um, you'll remember the, the listeners to the to this broadcast podcast might remember that um, he gave evidence, Alan gave evidence at a parliamentary committee recently, which was just, you know, I don't think any of us ever imagined that would ever happen, but that's amazing. That is really, you know, for a really bad reason, a very good thing for the profession's profile. Mm. And what do you think the IBMS and the profession and individual biomedical scientists stand to gain from this increased awareness throughout this year? I, well, I mean, increased recognition is always is always going to be good, isn't it? But also the other thing is I think that we can use the um, the increased awareness to explain not only what we do all day, but how important some of the tests we do are, particularly things like screening tests, mm. to try and encourage people to take, um, take care of their health by um, seeking laboratory tests, but also... Another thing I think is important is to explain to them why some tests take longer than others, what to expect from a test result, and what not what's unreal what's unrealistic to expect from a from a test result, and somehow a bit more about how how um, how science how the science of laboratory diagnosis actually works in a way that that people can maybe relate to. I'm sure we're all used to doing it with our friends and family. But now we've got the opportunity to do that perhaps to a to a wider audience. Um, I think that will help because I think it helps with people who are using the laboratory service. If they understand a bit more about how the service works from, from the point of view of biomedical scientists and clinical scientists, then it's easier for us to kind of work with each other and provide a good service for the patients while um, getting recognition for the people who are actually doing the work. Is there a danger that um, after the pandemic, comes to an end that the exposure will go away and I guess if there is how can we keep biomedical scientists in the public eye? Well I think there is so which which means that people who have managed to gain a public profile should keep keep on with that I think the Institute of Biomedical Science is known to the press now so that means that if we put out a press release about something not to do with the Covid pandemic but something to do with laboratory testing in a different context, it's more likely that they will take us up on the offer of doing an interview or doing a newspaper article about it because they've heard of us and they know that we're the ones who are the experts in this in that area. So I think it's probably a case of looking for opportunities to 
raise our profile um you know into next year and, and beyond um w w issues which are nothing to do with covid um but linking in to to the journalists and the contact and the profile that we've actually got and just kind of building on it which i definitely think we can definitely do that's a, kind of like a stepping stone into the future i think it can be we ha we obviously have to take that opportunity and run with it but i think it definitely can be yes so um at the university of brighton you're you're currently investigating this stuff how perceptions have changed towards biomedical scientists because of the pandemic so could you tell us a bit about the project and the survey that you've launched yeah so i was very interested in how it feels to be a biomedical scientist at the moment mm. with the changes in the public perception and some of the things that people have been saying about laboratories have been very good and some of them have been a bit you know critical and but in the meantime all biomedical scientists whichever discipline they're in have been working their socks off to support um support the patient so either testing for covid testing the the, for the markers of patients who are seriously in a hospital with covid and then testing extra testing for all the patients who don't have COVID, but have other things that need testing for, while covering for their colleagues who are of sick with COVID or in, or in self-isolation. That happened a lot, particularly back in sort of March, April. So um, I was just interested to see if we could get a, a sort of a, 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 a national picture of how that has been for everybody. And so I work, worked with a, a colleague of mine called uh, Dr. Mark Erickson, who's working in social sciences department to design a questionnaire, sir, design a questionnaire which we put out as a survey. And um, I'd be it would be really good if if we if we can get lots and lots of replies from people from any area of any any IBMS members, even if they're not working in um, hospital diagnostic laboratories, they're still. Um, IBMS members and the IBMS has been in a very high profile this year so that's very interesting people who've been working in um, universities for example how's that been for them people who've been working in pharmaceutical companies and testing companies how has it how has that been for them but also any discipline of pathology because we've all had a very strange year it's not just virologists that have had a strange year so I'm really interested in how it's been for everybody and I've really you know if anyone's got just a you know 10 minutes or so 20, 15 minutes to just do a an anonymous online survey which is available through the ibms website um then that would be that would be really amazing because the more date the more information we've got the more we can find out how it's been for everybody and the more we can try and help them in the future and when's the deadline for the survey the, the deadline has been extended now to the 31st of December. So if you're a little bit sort of stuck for something to do over Christmas because your relatives can't visit or because your relatives apparently maybe can visit and you're trying to find, trying to find a way to avoid them, um, then that, that would also be fine to any time up until the end of, and the end of the year, actually. Okay. And we're going to put a link to Sarah's survey in the show notes for anyone who wants to take part over the festive season thank you and we couldn't have you on sarah without talking a little bit about virology especially considering the breakthroughs we've had recently concerning the vaccines mm -hmm. so my question is 
the main COVID vaccines that are proven safe and effective from Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna, and recently the Oxford vaccine, they're using a slightly different approach in order to generate immunity compared to the conventional technique of using the weakened or dead virus. How do they differ and how, how do they work these vaccines? Well, the, um, the Pfizer, BioNTech and the Moderna vaccine have actually gone with trying to use, um, encourage using a bit of the viral genome, just trying to encourage the cells to produce viral messenger RNA and thus to make the um, viral glycoprotein, the sticky out bit, which is called the spike protein. And so this was very, um, very new technology. There aren't any actual vaccines any other vaccines in clinical use using that, that format. Mm. So I think one of the reasons that they tried it was because um, if it was going to be, if it was going to work, and it, it was a big if actually back, back at the beginning of the year, um, then they would be able to produce vaccines more quickly than the conventional methods. Because as you say, if you're trying to use a, um, a weakened version of the whole natural virus you've actually got to spend quite a lot of time um making doing that weakening of the virus doing that attenuation of the virus and so um that takes a lot of time and then you've got to test the virus for safety before you put it into even animals to make sure that it isn't that it has properly been disabled so um getting messenger rna to, to fool the body into producing viral spike protein was obviously going to be um, quicker. And the Oxford vaccine is using a slightly more tried and tested method, which is where you've got a, a, a harmless virus. In this case, it's an adenovirus, and they've just swapped out a bit of the adenovirus genome and put in, um, again, the, the code for, this, for the spike gene mm -hmm. of, of um, SARS-CoV-2. And so, that's a little bit more um, further further on in terms of how there are other vaccines used in that, that um, method. Um, for example, there's one that they developed against Ebola that was just um, licensed for use at the uh, December 2019, so about just about a year ago. But it's still quite a new technology. Mm. Um, so, but again, one of the reasons they went for that was because it was potentially a faster route to a a vaccine and even and i think they were thinking even if it didn't work that well it was a start while we're waiting for the for the other ones to catch up with us um there is one that's being produced by a company i think it's a belgium company called valneva but it's going to be made in livingston in scotland um which is just a whole whole virus killed which in some ways that sounds more likely to work and it gives the, it stops you having to guess which bit of the virus the body the body naturally wants to um, uh, respond to. It gives you the whole. If you give the body the whole virus, the body will do what it normally does. But again, that's not going to be ready until well into next year because of safety um, um, issues in actually producing the vaccine at all. So that's quite good. And now we've got these three, which do appear to work much, much, much better, I think, than anybody probably imagined. Um, this is it's really good news because we've got lots of options and we've got other options using the more traditional vaccine development techniques also coming on stream potentially next year as well so we have lots of options for vaccines which will be which will be, it will be really good because 
we have got to vaccinate everybody in the whole world. And all of that teams that have come out so far need at least two doses. So that's everybody in the whole world needing two doses. That's an awful lot of that's an awful lot of vaccine doses. So the more different ones we've got, as long as they all work reasonably well, then um, the better chance we have of making sure that everybody gets protected. Um, do, do you think now we're at the beginning of the end? Or I do feel as though the light at the end of the tunnel has started to become clearer now. I'm starting to I'm starting to feel that it's getting towards the end. But on the other hand, um, it's worth remembering that if you look at pandemic viruses, particularly respiratory viruses, 18 months to two years is usually about how long it takes for um, the virus to either do what it wants to do and or human beings to catch up with the virus and start to bring the thing under control. So the uh, the 1918 influenza pandemic, that that did go on until, uh, that is, did go on until 1920, so that was about two years. But um, if you look at SARS-1, that went away after 18 months. The 2009 swine flu, that took about 18 months to work its way sort of through the system. And so it, it was always quite likely to be um, sometime in 2021 where we really got it back under control. That isn't to say that it will have gone away entirely, but it does mean that we will be looking at small local outbreaks um, occasionally. And so that we will hopefully be back to some kind of normal life um, by certainly by this time next year, you know, at the moment we're talking about um, whether we'll all be able to get together with our families for Christmas and it will be a very restricted version of Christmas if we if we do get together at all. But I'm hoping that next Christmas we'll be able to, everybody will be able to get together and we'll be able to have Christmas parties and we'll all be back to some kind of level of normal. Um, and so that that's, that's what one would expect just from history of pandemic uh respiratory viruses anyway but also um the fact that we've got these vaccines coming in and potentially some treatments for people who are very seriously ill with covid as well those things are really helping um to mean that if you even if you do end up in hospital you're less likely to die from from covid uh, and the complications than you were six months ago which is also very help, hopeful and helpful as well mm. a lot of hope that we're reaching the yeah. end at least of the most serious part of the pandemic um, yes okay well i'm gonna hand you over now to rob because we've got some questions from from some members from, via social media okay fantastic so we've had a couple of questions come in sarah the first one is from charlotte a biomedical scientist in manchester and um, we've only got a couple of minutes left so we'll, we'll whip through these but um she asks how has sarah's workload changed throughout the pandemic and if you've had to shift away from any research that you're working on, which we have kind of covered right at the start. So just to kind of take the question a bit further on, I'm going to ask, is your research going to start again next year? Are we expecting a new batch of snails in March? Yes, yes, I'm definitely going to restart my research next year. But um, we talked earlier about the amount of media work that I've been doing, and I've been doing all of that on top of my normal um, university job and everything went online so all the marking all the teaching even exams and marking exams all went online so everybody had loads of extra work 
from the university's point of view. And then on top of that, I actually had all the, the media work and the work that I'm doing for the Institute around COVID. So um, my workload increased quite a lot while everyone else is in lockdown learning French and pottery and things. I've been barely getting enough sleep. So my, so I hope that answers that question. And I'll be back to my research next year, definitely. So Iggy Mason is the president of the Biomedical Science Society at the University of West England. And he asks, how has the pandemic affected the delivery of the biomedical science degree programme and have practical classes and placements been changed? Well, at my university, we've done slightly fewer face-to-face practicals this term. We're hoping that that's not going to continue for too much longer. I, I'm not sure about other universities. I know other universities have also been trying to do practicals. And my placement students who are in um, NHS uh, laboratories doing sandwich placements, those have continued as normal. Um, I'm And uh, other students are on, on our placements as well. If so if the workplace has been carrying on, then the placement has been carrying on. I can't speak for all the other universities in the country, um, so that it might it might vary from uh, from uh, university to university. But I think generally we've done our best to try and keep everything going as um, as far as we possibly can. The thing with the practicals is we've had to do fewer practicals because we have to do them lots of times in in smaller groups. So. For example, two weeks ago, um, I did first year microbiology practicals and we had um, 12 groups. So it was sort of three a day. And that's so we had to. Um, uh, so we, ha- we had to sort of do. A, actually, we did the same amount that we normally do. We had to kind of just make it COVID secure. So and in some ways, I think for the students, it was probably nicer because they had a bit more, they were sort of 12 students and three demonstrators, so they actually had a bit more attention than they would normally have because they were a, weren't able to work with their in, in twos and threes, which they would normally have. So the students weren't able to help each other in the way they normally would in a practical, but the lecturers were able to help them a bit more than they normally would because we had more time for it. So I'm not sure that it's, I mean, it's not the same as what you would normally have, but I'm hopefully sort of, swings and roundabouts and it's turned out all right hopefully okay well that's the end of the question thank you so much sarah for joining us today thank you for this month's lab life we're lucky to be joined by ibms fellow umar siddiqui now umar is a biomedical scientist specializing in microbiology at queen's hospital burton on trent um, but you may also know him as a member of the much-loved Siddiqui family on Channel 4's Gogglebox. So we're going to hear about this in a second, but first, Umar, please could you just tell us a bit about your work as a biomedical scientist? So how long have you been a biomedical scientist and what kind of stuff do you get up to on a normal day? Uh, hi, Helen. Uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you for inviting me uh, to chat with you. Yeah, so um, I've been a biomedical scientist in microbiology um, Got to cast my mind back now because it seems like a long time ago. Uh, December 2000 is when I first uh, uh, got the job as a trainee. And I think a year after that, I got my HPC. It was known as a HPC back then, not HCPC. Yeah, it's been, uh, I mean, I've loved it. The job is so varied, so interesting in uh, microbiology, especially. It's still one of those disciplines where you still get to work with your hands. 
uh, there is some automation coming in, but largely by and part, you can still um, do tests and they're quite manual manual tests. My day really, uh, for, I suppose for any BMS in microbiology, starts with uh, reading uh, culture plates in the morning. And that depends on where what bench I'm on. So I work in Bursley, which is quite a small lab, but we still have a, a urine analysis section, blood cultures, uh, enterics, respiratory, and wound swabs. So I'll start by uh, reading plates, uh, the cultures, 24-hour, 48-hour cultures, and then set up any tests, uh, any subsequent tests for further identification. Uh, and that includes also setting up uh, antibiotic uh, sensitivities. So that's that's really the morning's uh, work. And then after lunch is usually assisting the MLAs in uh, putting up samples and doing any kind of microscopy, any kind of further work uh, in the afternoon. Uh, and we, we discussed this briefly before, but the kind of the lab workflow has changed a bit ever since the, uh, the COVID uh, pandemic in that the, work, the workload has dropped off slightly with the routine work as far as that's concerned, but now we've got the additional uh, COVID samples coming in, so I'm also involved in uh, packaging those, shipping them off, and then getting any results back and uh, putting them onto the, onto the lab computer system. Life in the lab, right, can get pretty busy and tiring, and we've all got ways to switch off at the end of the day, and for most people that can be kicking back watching some TV, but I know that your experience of watching TV is slightly different to most people's. Um, <laughs> please could you just give our listeners a quick rundown of um, what Gogglebox is in case they don't know and your family's involvement in it? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yes, yeah. so, like you said, TV is quite a routine part of normal people's lives, but with me and my family and the other participants on the show, we've kind of taken on that extra extra meaning. What does it mean to watch TV? <laughs> but yeah, as far as Gogglebox is concerned, where the, me, my uh, dad, and my brother uh, Bassett, we've been on the show. We've been, we're classed as regulars now uh, mm. in that we've since series one. I feel like the nation has grown to love your family in particular. Like you just seem like your interactions are so wholesome and genuine. And have you always been so close as a family? I mean, what you see is, is more or less us uh, in terms of the, the, the family dynamic. and. That, just, that doesn't just include me, Dad and Bassi. I mean, it extends to uh, my other brother, Raza, who also appears on the show uh, occasionally, and my two sisters and, and mum as well. It's just that kind of... We've all got a very peculiar sense of humour that we all tend, we've all tended to adopt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> really. I mean, I think with us, when we actually do get together, and if, if we're not being filmed, sometimes it will become too like an in-joke, and sometimes that doesn't always make for good TV. Yeah, I think for the most part, what you see, the way that we uh, interact with each other is is more or less the way that we really are. Mm, that's awesome. Do you ever forget that the camera's on? Yeah, I mean, you never forget, I mean, you never forget the camera's there because it's, it's quite a big piece of film, <laughs> but you do, you do forget that you're in the presence of something that is being filmed. Mm. It's, quite, it's quite a weird thing to explain, uh, certainly when we were first starting, we were very, it's camera shy, really, uh, is the best way to describe it. It's like, um, this, this feels weird, but now there's a kind of familiarity about it. And the way that the, the people that we work with, they kind of, 
ease you into it and they appreciate who you are as a family and what what's likely to provoke a reaction and the way that you're going to respond to a particular program i mean my, the family uh, me dad and bass we're known for kind of like a dry sense of humor mixed with a bit of uh, sensible opinions and like for example say if, uh, strictly from dancing is, is on we you'd never see us taking part in waving hands in the air or that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah um yeah because you mentioned strictly come dancing like they show you a whole host of different types of shows right you get reality tv get strictly get some like clips from the news and things like do you find that you're watching shows that you might not normally watch and also do you find that there are some shows that you just find you naturally would respond to more yeah definitely, definitely. Mm. Uh, they, they just show us a barrage of different shows and I must admit, nine, nine out of ten of those shows, I probably wouldn't watch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I've just recently discovered Netflix, so I'm all about Netflix. Uh, yeah. Which I do occasionally show some, some Netflix uh, dramas and, and box sets. But, um, yeah, it's, it's strange because prior to participating in Gold Box, I wouldn't have watched particular shows, but now I do. On, on any given day when we're filming, they could show you any number of different, very different kind of things. And you just have to get into that mindset, right, I'm watching something different now. So as much as uh, we, we try and make it as close to people watching TV as possible, people aren't subjected to different shows over a course of time, like, like the way that we are. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. These podcasts are released monthly at the same time the magazine comes out. So whenever a new issue lands on your doormat, head back online to listen to a new episode. And don't forget that these podcasts can be used for your CPD. Take care and bye.